Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. If those verses from Matthew aren't on a prayer card, you should get them on a prayer card. The harvest is plentiful, the labors are few. Uh, that, is, that is where I feel like I'm living a lot these days. Our scripture reading is uh, from 1 Samuel chapter 14. So we're in a series going through 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, and we're really focusing on the theme that's woven throughout that, that material about God being present with his people. Uh, the ark of God, and but just even more than that, the Lord's presence. And so we come to this chapter in chapter 14. Now I have a secret. I've long loved this chapter and been excited about one day being able to talk with somebody about the things that have really struck me in it. So I'm excited this morning because uh, this is a neat story, I think. Uh, it's about Jonathan, not the Jonathan that just spoke, although he does mirror Jonathan and the Jonathan here in a lot of ways, but Saul's son, Jonathan. So let's read together beginning in verse 1. We're going to read the first two verses, and then we're going to skip down just for the sake of time to verse 4 and read through verse 24. And so uh, let's read together, okay? 1 Samuel 14. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men, including a bunch of names that we won't read. And then verse 4. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bezez, and the name of the other was Sina. And the one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait, until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign for us. So both of them <coughs> excuse me, showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines, Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming up out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. This is an interesting construction there. Like, come up to us. Uh-huh. We dare you, basically, is what they're saying. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. And then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, and they killed them, and he killed them after him. At that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, they killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, and the garrison, and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing there and here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp 
Even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, and they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Aven. Verse 24, and the men of Israel had been hard pressed on that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. I know that's a little anticlimactic, but that's where we want to end. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. So this particular section of material here in 1 Samuel, verses chapters 13, 14, and 15, are meant to highlight the failures of Saul as the king, because he, as you, if you know the story very quickly, in, in the next chapter, chapter 16, he's going to be supplanted by David, which all of this is anticipating David. For us, that means all of it's anticipating the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom, we are already told, had been torn away from Saul and had already been promised to be given to another. Saul and Jonathan, his son, had been given a mandate to deliver Israel from their enemies. And I want to say to you as well, you have been given a divine mandate as well. As a person made in the image of God, no matter what you believe, whether you believe in Christianity or not, the very fact that you're made in God's image, you've been given a mandate. But if you are a Christian and therefore redeemed by Christ with the spirit of the living God inside of you, even more so. And that's how we come into this text is to realize that much of what we see here is also a part of the calling that God has given to us in our lives. Saul failed. Like, dramatically. Gloriously. For all of the reasons that are mentioned in these three chapters, so that we can learn the lessons, so that you and I, so that we will not fail in the same way. We can fail too for the same reasons. So we have a lot to learn from Saul about what's all got wrong for our own lives as we think about the people that we uh, are under as kings and leaders in our lives and as we seek to be leaders and kingly in the places that God calls us to. And the lesson from this particular part of all of that material, this particular text, is that it requires tremendous courage. It requires courage. Now, you might ask, what requires courage? Here's my answer. Everything. Getting out of the bed in the morning takes courage. Walking into church on Sundays takes courage. So does friendship and marriage and parenting and starting a new business and seeking to be a good neighbor to the people who live on either side of you and volunteering with a nonprofit. To love is to be vulnerable and vulnerability requires enormous courage. C.S. Lewis said that courage is not just one of the virtues, it is, the virtu- it is virtue itself in its highest form. And he went so far in mere Christianity to say that that is probably why God made the world a dangerous place. God made the world a dangerous place so that by living in it, we would have no choice but to become people who are courageous. Because it is what, is, it is what, he, is meant, he, what he means for us to be. So here's my question for you to ponder as we walk through this text together this morning. What, or who, or where, I guess, what encourages you? Who in your life is a source of encouragement to you? What places, what things, 
How do you find courage? What encourages you? Ray Ortland said, there's no such thing as too much encouragement. He, he said, I've never met somebody in all of my years, and he's an older man, I've never met somebody in all of my years who ever suffered from being overly encouraged. Hebrews says it this way. It says, encourage one another daily, daily, every day. You need courage every day. That's how current courage deficient encouragement deficient we are is the scripture warns us encourages us to be encouraging one another every day and so we want to talk about courage this morning okay because that's really what this text is about now aristotle reaching way back okay aristotle taught and this has always been helpful to me in my life he taught and i I tend to agree with him in most in most cases that virtue was actually a golden mean between two extremes. So the virtuous thing is actually the thing that is that has the ability to not get pulled into either extremes on either side. So for him, courage was a virtue that was located somewhere between cowardice on the one hand and recklessness on the other. So he said it's possible, obviously, to have too little courage. We know that. But what, what was, I think, insightful about the way he put it is, is it's also possible not just to have too little courage and become passive and resigned, it is also possible to have too much courage. And that sums up perfectly the fault that you see install in this text. And actually what you have here is a contrast between Saul and his son, Jonathan. There, there's a parting of ways that takes place that will last for the rest of their, both of their lives uh, in the rest of the pages of, of 1 Samuel. You see, on the one hand, Jonathan's deep faith and the courage that it produces in him, because he really is the hero of this text. There's, there's real courage in him. It's contrasted with Saul's fear, but it's interesting the way Saul's fear gets express, expressed, and I'll, I'll show it to you in just a minute. And so we want to see that contrast between, between Jonathan's faith and Saul's fear, And then obviously we want to go where the text we believe takes us, which is to the very work and person of Jesus, which can help us become people who live with the kind of courage that we need as well, okay? So that's what we're going to see as we walk through the text. So first, let's look at Jonathan's faith, because that really is what stands out in this text. That is the positive before the negative, okay? There is, and as I've said, obviously there's great pains being taken here to make this contrast between Jonathan and Saul. Jonathan would have made a great king. Jonathan was the king the people needed. He would have been a better king than Saul, but we know that Jonathan would never be king. They were stuck with Saul, and it was the judgment of God. Jonathan would have made a great king. He would have been, he would have been, he was the king that they needed, but Saul was the king that they asked for, and God gave them what they asked for. And whenever there are qualified leaders, and this should hit home, okay? Whenever there are qualified leaders, but they aren't given leadership roles, and instead you're stuck with less qualified people as the choices for leadership, it is the judgment of God. That is what's happening to the people here. Jonathan is this shining example, and he continues to be so throughout. He's really, in many ways, the hero of the whole story throughout 1 Samuel. So let's look at his faith. And Frederick Buechner wrote this. He said, faith is better understood as a verb than a noun. And I think that's helpful. Faith is better understood as a verb than a noun. And in other words, faith is something that is beyond mere belief. It is belief in action. Faith without works is dead, 
James writes to the churches. That is not meant to pit faith and works against one another, but to, but to say that faith shows itself in the works that it does. Faith leads to action. And what you see here, beginning in verse 1, is that Jonathan took action. He decided to take the fight to the Philistines. And so he took his armor bearer and he headed toward the enemy garrison to see what kind of trouble he might get into. And at first glance, it might have seemed ill-advised, but it was clearly portrayed here by the narrator as a positive development in the story. It was what Saul should have already been doing. So even though Jonathan had no real plan, and he didn't have a plan, right? You can tell that when you read. I mean, he just like, I don't know, let's just go over there and see what happens, right? I mean, he had no real plan. Even though that was the case, he was lauded for his initiative because when it comes to calling, it is easy to get caught in the paralysis of analysis because it is not always easy to determine what you should do. And when you can't know exactly what you should do, the greatest temptation that you face is to do nothing. Jonathan was not sure that he was doing the right thing. <laughs> he couldn't say for certain that it was what God had called him to do or even wanted him to do. He had no idea whether it would work or not. He just knew that he had to do something. He just do something, which happens to be the title of a book by Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor in our denomination. And the title of the book is this, Do Something. And then the subtitle is one of the greatest subtitles of all time. Here it is. Here's the, the subtitle of the book. Do something, a liberating approach to finding God's will or how to make a decision without dreams, visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, liver shivers, writing in the sky, etc. And his argument in that book is that we tend to, in the name of God, in the name of religion, we tend to hyper-spiritualize the will of God. And get caught in paralysis of analysis and think, i gotta, I got to figure out what it is God wants me to do here. When he says, instead of worrying about, sometimes, this is going to sound really unspiritual. That's kind of the point, though. Instead of worrying so much about whether you're doing what God wants you to do, sometimes the best you can come up with is you just got to do something. Better to just delight yourself in the Lord, seek him with all your heart, and do something. Jonathan calls the Philistines in verse 6 these uncircumcised. Do you see that? It's a derogatory term, come, let's go to these uncircumcised. And it might seem like an insignificant detail, but it is not. He's saying that these people they're going against, they did not belong to the covenant people of God. They did not have the same relationship with God that he did and that Israel did. God did not fight for them the way he fought for Israel and promised to fight for Israel. God was for Israel, not the Philistines. And that is the thing that framed Jonathan's engagement here. So it's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 8, God is for Israel, not for the Philistines. And if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? And for us, that means if the gospel is true, if God is truly for us in Jesus Christ, if we are saved by his mercy and not our might, by grace alone, if our, listen please, if our successes don't earn us a place in his family, and if our mistakes and our bad decisions and our past don't forfeit his love, if he is sanctifying us, sanctifying our emotions, sanctifying our desires, sanctifying our decision-making, and if the Spirit lives inside of us to lead us and to guide us into obedience, whatever he might ask of us, if all of that is true, then maybe instead of getting so hung up on making the right decision, maybe, maybe that's not actually a sign of spirituality. Maybe it's a sign of unbelief. 
Maybe it is better in a lot of cases to just do something. Because here's the thing, there is no no faith option. You have to trust God. No matter what course of action you decide on in any decision that you might make, any decision, but in a weird way, I thought about it this week, if that is true, if in almost every decision you make, there is, a no, there is no, no faith option, in my mind, that kind of takes the pressure off, doesn't it? I mean, because it means there is no such thing as salvation by right decision making. Right? I mean, no wonder it is so hard to make a decision, if that's what you believe, underneath the surface of your life, that somehow all the good you desire or your very soul hangs in the balance with the decisions that you make or the souls of the people that you love. But there is no salvation by right decision-making. Jonathan's faith was a verb. <clears throat> he was outnumbered. We're not sure, but at least, at least 10 to 1. The enemy has the high ground. There's no tactical advantage. He's, he, every, he has every tactical disadvantage. He has to advance up a steep cliff, which is named there in verse 4. There's actually two cliffs, and he has to decide which one he's going to go up. One of them is called Slippery, and the other is called Thorny. That's like getting to the top of the mountain when you're snow skiing, and it's a black, double black diamond called the Devil's Crotch. You know, and you're like, oh, this is not going to go. This Obviously, this has been named like Trouble. You know, thorny and slippery. When you're hiking, those are not, you know, hey, let's go up thorny today. Anybody want to do that? And yet, despite all of that, he advanced and he rooted the enemy, doing what his father should have been doing, what Saul had been authorized by God to be doing. Jonathan had the courage that it takes when Saul did not. And you see it most clearly in the expression in verse 6, which I just love. He says, to his armor bearer, come, let us go over to them. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. Isn't that awesome? Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan was confident that God was able to give them the victory because God can save with many or God can save with few. The numbers matter very little when it comes to his salvation. But at the same time, notice he allowed God to be God. He said, God, God is able, but he could not say for sure whether God was willing. And there are many today who would say that that hesitancy and that half-heartedness in him shows a lack of faith on his part. I don't buy it. Faith to be faith does not have to be certain or dogmatic or absolutely positive. The perhaps in that, in that statement of his is part of his faith. He Declared and confessed the power of God to save while also retaining the freedom of God to do whatever he sees fit to do. And that balance is what is so important because on the one hand, to know that God is able to save kept him from having too little courage, to borrow from Aristotle. Too little courage, becoming passive and fearful and frozen in indecision. But on the other hand, to know that God is not obligated to save, that God is free to do whatever he chooses, that kept Jonathan from having too much courage, becoming overly confident and reckless, as we sometimes do. Dale Ralph Davis said this, Faith does not dictate to God. As if the Lord of hosts is an errand boy, faith recognizes its degree of ignorance and knows that it has not read the transcript of the divine decrees in most situations. That's a great sentence. 
We have not read the transcript of the divine decrees in most situations. All of this, however, he writes, does not cancel, but enhances faith's excitement. For who knows what this omnipotent God may be delighted to do? Now that last part interests me. It's so interesting to me. Knowing, not knowing what God might do, not knowing whether he might act or how should not diminish your excitement and curiosity about what he might do, but actually increase and broaden it because maybe God's thinking about things that you haven't even thought about yet. That's faith. So let me try to apply this before we move on. And the first thing I would say to you is I would point you to is the way that Jonathan refused to personalize things. It really is striking to me here. He clearly understood, and it's really part of what brought his faith into action. He clearly understands that, that his actions were part of the much larger story in which he had a very small part to play. And that was the secret, I think, of his faith. Because it's easier, this is one of those one-liners that I think could be helpful if you could hold on to it. It's easier to think big about God when you think little of yourself. Sometimes when we are battling with unbelief, it's because we have become too important in our own stories, right? It's easier to think big about God when you think little of yourself. And notice in verse 12, it's just a small little detail, but I think it's significant. When, he, when the victory comes, he didn't claim credit for the victory. Look at what he says, verse 12. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. He did not say, the Lord has given them into our hands. God did this for me. No, he says, God did this for his people. Jonathan didn't make it all about Jonathan, unlike his father. Jonathan saw himself as belonging to something bigger than his own life, and that perspective nurtures risk-taking and courage. But the other thing is, notice how Jonathan's faith was contagious. Sometimes, like, it's like, what this whole text is like a chain reaction of courage. And it begins with one person making a simple decision to do something that seems extraordinary on the surface of it, with extraordinary faith. Notice how it starts with his armor bearer. His armor bearer's response is so great. He says, hey, let's go over here. I can't tell you that God's gonna give us the victory, but who knows what God might do? And look what his armor bearer says. This is amazing. Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Isn't that great? Hey, we're probably gonna die, but let's go see what trouble we can get to. I'm with you, heart and soul, let's go. Everybody needs a friend like that. Don't you? Everybody needs a friend like that. This may be a stupid idea. Yeah, it probably is stupid, but I'm with you, let's go. And what happens is, is Jonathan's courage makes him courageous, which encourages Jonathan, you see? And then the two of them go up together, and then all of a sudden, all these cowards who have been hiding out start to join. Now the Philistines are in retreat, and everybody like starts coming out of the woodwork everywhere because they've been so afraid and it's this one act of courage that starts this chain reaction of courage and so on it's hard to have faith all by yourself it's too easy to lose heart you need a friend who can help you be courageous and so that's what we see in Jonathan is his faith and it really is remarkable but secondly it's really contrasted in the text with Saul's fear so the question is, is where was Saul when all this was happening and why was it Jonathan not Saul that accomplished this because God had given the mandate to Saul. And the text says all the way back in verse two that Saul with his 600 men were lounging in the shade. 
Now, the language is unclear, but the intention is crystal clear. Saul was afraid. He was sitting it out. He lacked the faith and the courage that you see in Jonathan. To borrow from Aristotle again, Saul was suffering from too little courage. He was hesitant. He was unwilling to engage the superior enemy forces. He had become too passive and resigned and comfortable. So here he is lounging in the shade of the pomegranate trees or in the pomegranate cave, whichever, whichever way you translate that. And again, the attendant effect is to highlight the contrast between Saul and Jonathan here. Saul lacked all of Jonathan's initiative and faith. We're not even given, we're, 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 we're even, verse two, given the detail that Jonathan kept his plan to himself. He didn't tell his father what he was going to do. He didn't tell Saul he was gonna go and engage the enemy. Now, kids, my experience, typically ask forgiveness, not permission for the stupid, dangerous things they decide to do. But that suggests that Jonathan and Saul were not on, on the same page. They were not of the same heart and mind, that there was some sort of breach that had opened between them. And in fact, that's what you see. And they just begin to diverge in two different directions that ultimately leads to Jonathan helping David take the kingdom from his father. Saul had previously been told that God was taking back the kingdom from him and giving it to another. And that news, earlier in the chapters 11, 12, and 13, filled him with such fear because he was so full of himself. Let me say that again. It filled him with fear because he was full of himself. Because fear and pride are close companions. And at first, his fear put him in a defensive posture. Having nothing to gain and everything to lose, he circled the wagons, he shut it down, Settled down in the shade. Now I say it first because that's the easy part to see. But because as soon as he realized, it starts to dawn on him. He's seeing the tumult in the enemy camp. And he said, okay, something's going on here. And he realized what Jonathan had done. Then he decided to jump into action. But not with real courage. Because what happened to him, and the reason I quoted Aristotle at the beginning, is what you see here is he went straight from the extreme of having... Of, of suffering from too little courage to the extreme of suffering from too much courage. Jonathan somehow avoided both. Saul, however, was driven by fear, not faith. And because fear was the most operative thing in his life, he, his too little courage quickly became too much courage. He missed Aristotle's golden mean of true courage in between. His passivity quickly became rashness. And both are motivated by fear. If you're, like, that is so real to my experience of my life. Anybody else? That my passivity can become rashness. I can say nothing, 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 nothing. And then, oh boy, watch out. Boom, the atomic bomb drops. You know, I can prove cowardly, 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 cowardly. And then make up for it by becoming a jerk. When I should have just been courageous the whole time. Faith is active, but not rash. It is bold, but not presumptuous. And you might be familiar with this kind of emotional swing in yourself or in others. Saul, Saul went from doing nothing to trying to control everything. Does that sound familiar? Those are the two easy options, aren't they? And what's fascinating is, is in that transition from doing nothing to trying to control everything, it's fascinating to see. Do you know where he turned? He turned to religion. Saul called for the ark, verse 18. 
And he began to inquire of God about what he should do, but it was all show. His heart wasn't in it. It wasn't sincere in in the slightest because as the tumult from the Philistine camp increased, in verse 19, there's this detail that you see, and it's shocking that he's called for the priest and the ark, and they're doing the whole thing to, to, to discover the will of God. But in the middle of the ceremony, Saul interrupts the whole thing, and then he goes off without even hearing from the Lord. And everybody who writes about this is like, that, that is an appalling thing for him to have done. And then later, as the battle continued, Saul made a rash vow that, that required the army to re- refrain from eating until the battle had been won. And again, it was just a religious show. He was not sincere. He was trying to impress the Lord with his religious commitment so he would grant him victory on the battlefield. For Saul, religion, spiritual things, God was just, the, the, you know, religion and spirituality were just a way to manipulate and control God. And his rash vow was the heart of legalism, which says, see, legalism believes that the more committed you are to God, the more committed he will be to you. The more that you do for him, the more he will do for you. The more you prove yourself, then the more he will prove himself to you. But you have to earn your way with God. If you obey the rules, if you perform the ceremonies, if you go to church, if you do all the right things, and then if you go and above and beyond in your obedience, then you have rights. God owes you. You can, you can demand things from him. You can say, okay, give me the victory now. And Saul went from doing nothing to controlling everything. And what I want you to see is both lack faith. He was passive because he did not believe his 600 men were enough to defeat the Philistines. He did not trust the Lord. He became controlling and demanding and reckless for the very same reason, his profound unbelief. He didn't trust God to take care of him and to fight for him. He was profoundly insecure, and so he was always trying to prove himself to himself, to the people, to God. And that was his downfall. Now, let me make application here just before we move to the last point. Notice the construction in verse 23 and 24. It's important. It says that the Lord saved Israel. The Lord brought victory to the people, but the, but the response of the people there was not rejoicing. They were not free. Instead, it actually says that they were hard-pressed, verse 24. So there's this, in 23, you don't expect 24 to come after 23. The Lord brought them victory. They should be celebrating them. But instead it says that they were burdened and disadvantaged and hard-pressed. Why? Because of Saul's legalism. And that's the problem with legalism. Saul's rule, hey, nobody eats until I'm avenged because we're going to show God how committed we are to this, right? Saul's rule about not eating, it didn't help. It didn't push them forward to victory. It actually set them back. It almost cost them the battle because, guess what? Without food, what happens to an army in the middle of a battle if they don't eat? The sword becomes a little heavy. The armor starts to weigh you down, and they failed to have the strength they needed to continue fighting. And it eventually led them to sin because they were so, I don't know about you, when I get hungry, this is what happens to me. I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to eat. I'm starving, I'm going to overeat. I thought you'd laugh at that, right? I mean, like... Is that just me? Am I, I mean, so I'm the undisciplined one. Tony's with me, I think. Tony knows that. Yeah, there you go. That's that. See, that's what happens. Legalism is a failed project. Obedience and courage comes from knowing you're loved, that you're, that you're seen, that you're secure, that you're in, that there is a love. There's a love that can create beauty and goodness in you, even in your badness. 
Listen, the good news of Christianity is we're not saved by our doing. Our doing. We're not saved by our doing. And then when that doesn't work, we double down and say, okay, well, then maybe I've got to do more. We're not saved by doing more. Which takes us exactly where I want us to end as we contemplate this text. Because we have to find ourselves in this story. And, of course, that means asking ourselves whether we are more like Jonathan or more like Saul. That really is a question you should ask. Do you have the courage of Jonathan to step out into the unknown with God or... And be honest here, or are you more like Saul, fearful and so either resigned or reckless or bouncing back and forth between the two? What do repentance and faith look like for you this morning? That's always a question that we should ask when we read and study the Bible. But if that is all we ask, we have simply moralized the text because the Bible is not a list of rules telling us what we should and shouldn't do. It is not a book of heroes showing us the people we should copy. The Bible isn't mainly about you and me and what we should be doing. It is about God and what he has done And this story is part of one big story, the gospel, how God has come in Jesus Christ to fight for his people and rescue them from the real enemies of sin and death, not just the Philistines. And even here, there are allusions to the true Savior. Now, Jonathan is an example, but he is also a pointer to Jesus. And that's important to note. All of the commentaries pick up on what is explicit in the original language. It gets lost somewhat in translation about the geography of this place where they are. The Israelites were camped on a rocky crag on one side of the wadi. And the Philistine garrison was located on the other side on a rocky crag. And to win the victory, Jonathan literally had to descend down into the one and then ascend back up the other. These crags... If they look like teeth, and so the language suggests a pair of jaws coming up out of the earth, the jaws of death, the jaws of Hades, so to speak. And so everybody who writes about this says it was a death and resurrection movement that Jonathan and his armor bearer went down into the jaws of Sheol and then came back up out of it victorious. The Philistines in verse 11 even say, look, the Israelites are coming up out of their graves. That's the word. They're coming up out of the graves. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Calls to mind the work of Jesus Christ who went down into death on the cross, even descending into hell itself, as the creed says, for our sins, but was raised by God on the third day and has ascended all the way back into heaven where he is seated At the right hand of God, the exalted prophet, priest, and king, making known his will to people as he draws them to himself and interceding for us before the Father and ruling over all things for the sake of his church. But see, it's not just the work of Christ. It's also the person of Christ that's foreshadowed in the text because Jonathan was, in small part, what Jesus is in absolute perfection, the champion of his people with strong faith in his Father's power and mercy. You see, you're meant to see the courage of Jonathan here and think of the true Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus was a person of enormous courage. I mean, think of all of the contempt and the persecution that he endured. Everywhere he went, people were conspiring to kill him. And yet he stood with the weak and with the vulnerable against the strong. He took enormous risks for the sake of love. He moved towards suffering, choosing it, not running from it. And he died with a courage and a grace that made the unbelieving centurion who was in charge of his crucifixion say, yeah, that that man was God. Most people are moved by Jesus' empathy and softness. For me, though, it is 
is courage because, of course, it takes incredible courage to be empathetic and compassionate and to get involved in the mess of other people's lives. And yet it is what you see so perfectly in our dear Savior. Now, what's the takeaway before we come to the table this morning? What's the takeaway? What do we want to walk away from this with? Well, if, G- if in Jesus, let me say it this way, not if, in Jesus, God is for you. Okay? God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? And that truth can cause you to live with courage, not too little courage. Passivity and resignation and passionless inertia because, because you know that God loves you and his love is compelling. Faith expresses itself in love, in action, but not too much courage either in reckless desperation and manipulation and control even using religion and spiritual things as a power play because God loves you, we learn in the gospel, but he loves you for Jesus' sake, which means his love, his love is not dependent on your performance in the slightest. His love is not dependent on your right decision-making. His love is not dependent on you being courageous His love is what can make you courageous. But it's all grace. So, don't over-spiritualize. Don't over-analyze. Just do something. Listen to the um, voice of the Lord in this old John Newton hymn where he says this, Though afflicted, tempest-tossed, Comfortless a while thou art, do not think thou canst be lost. Thou art graven on my heart. All thy wastes I will repair. And in thee it shall appear, oh, excuse me, all thy wastes I will repair. Thou shalt be rebuilt anew. And in thee it shall appear what the love of God can do. That is, I love that so much that we would be people that it would appear in the way that we live our lives what the love of God can do in a person's life. Amen? So let's turn to him in faith and then let's come to this table together this morning. So let's pray. If you pray with me, Father, would you make that so? Would, in fact, you reveal your love to us, not only in your word preached, but now in the body and the blood of Christ presented for us at this table, would we be so absolutely convinced of your great love for us that we would explode, it would explode out of our hearts in repentance and faith, turning away from all the wrong things that we've done, trying to live our lives on our own apart from you, but also from all the good things that we try to do to earn away with you and turning away also uh, from the idols that have captivated our hearts and turning to you, the one true savior, the lover of our souls, the heart at the center of the universe, who, which beats with such relentless power and consistency and strength that in its heartbeat, we can find ourselves unafraid. So come now and do that great work in us. Lead us, whether for the first time or for the hundredth time in greater measure, to that kind of faith and repentance that we might live with the right amount of courage for the sake of your glory. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's great. So we go out into our Father's world. We go out this week into days of God's making.
And it is our job to rejoice and be glad in those days that he's making. But you do that by settling your heart on the truth uh, that in Jesus Christ, God is for you, which means we go not trying to earn our way into his good graces, into his heart, but we go knowing that this week will also be just the expression of the overflow of his heart for us. That's what these words mean. So receive this word of benediction. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the promise God makes to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.